This is Text, Prose, and Rock and Roll. B-Side. Hey everybody, it's Chris. You know, on our recent episode about Ben Fong Torres, one of the founding editors of Rolling Stone magazine, we talked about Ben's story coming up in San Francisco and covering the music industry and the many, many celebrities he had the opportunity to not only meet, but in some cases, actually help them become the celebrities they are today. Well, Ben also shared with us the story about the last interview he did with Jim Morrison, which was, in fact, Jim Morrison's last interview. That would have been 50 years ago this summer. So on today's Text Pros and Rock and Roll B-Side, we're going to air that interview in its entirety. Now, I will warn you right now, it is pretty long. It's over an hour. But we thought the best way to respect journalism is to do it without any edits. So, I give to you Ben Fong Torres and the final interview of Jim Morrison. Well, I know what we can start you off You know, when I met you today, I thought you were uh, an exchange student from UCLA or something, working over here, and Diane was letting you use her typewriter or something. But I should have known by now that anyone in Diane's apartment has to connect it with music, right? In some or, or, way. Yeah, or, or just some kind of freak show. Sure. No, it's always music. Well, I thought way. Pamela had told you before, no. or Diana told you exactly who was down there, no. because there was that kind of a tenuous relationship between Rolling Stone and The Doors. No, I had no idea. Yeah, Ned's uh, sort of moved in, I think. No, but is he connected with music? Ned, I don't know what he is. When you said you wrote for Rolling Stone, I thought you said the Rolling Stones. That's why I asked you if you wrote songs. Oh, I thought you weren't aware of the magazine. <laughs> I didn't know. I thought, so, I thought you really Stones. Tracks, they'll always say, oh, the Rolling Stones have a magazine? Yeah. <coughs> anyway, the first question is about your, your music. Um, can, you, can you say a bit more about what you said, blues? Is that really new to you? No, that's what I think I said in here. That's what I was hoping this album would turn out to be because it's what we do best, I think. Peter, excuse me for not getting up. I got a bad leg. Nice to meet you, man. No, it's just. Uh, to me, that's what we do best. That's, well, that's what I enjoy singing the most. And, uh, so this album is turning out. Uh, we're using. Elvis is bass player mm. on bass. His name is Jerry. I, damn, I forget his last name. You could find out he's young. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, I thought it was Sage. Getting <laughs> awful. <laughs> so uh, if you could find out. You're his using last Elvis as bass player for the whole thing. Yeah, just uh-huh. about. Uh-huh. And we, uh, for the first time, we recorded it at our office where we rehearse, and the boards upstairs. We're using the same engineer that we use on the other records, Bruce Botnick. Yeah. But we're not using Paul Rothschild on this one. It was kind of a mutual. Just figured it was time to hmm. take different Who's producing roads. it? I guess we'll co-produce it with Bruce. I don't know when the credits will be. <coughs> but it's really because he's a uh, he's a young guy and he's he's very uh, uh, very easy to work with. Mm-hmm. Well, you yourself, of course, like over the course of. Uh, five, six albums have uh, become aware enough to really produce your own music, you know, I mean, to, be, to be able to make the same judgments as, as Paul did before. I guess we could have sooner, but we just yeah. never, uh, we were too busy to think about it, you know. Yeah. Is it more assuring to just have an extra ear in the studio? I, could, I couldn't, I could never produce anyone, because I don't have the patience for it. I think that's the main thing, is who's ever producing 
or engineering has to have incredible patience just to sit there for hour after hour after hour. Yeah. Like you can get up for a while, for a few hours, and split and come back and all that, but he's got to be there all the time. And right. With uh, with Morrison's Hotel, you were definitely making a some kind of a bow to old time rock and roll. Now now you're talking about uh, a, a particular aim at blues. Is it the same kind of feeling, or is it just more like? Uh, I mean, is it something where you feel sincerely you want to try this facet of music, or is it more honest, or is it more sincere and natural? Well, when we used to play in clubs, I'd say over half of what we did was blues. Mm. And uh, we used our own material on records, but I think the most exciting things we did were basic blues things. I like them because they're fun to sing. Who's, who's writing the music, or are you picking out uh, no, we, numbers? No, we may use a few old ones, but we're mainly uh, doing original blues, if there's such a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, all the, the lyrics are original. Like, we may do a, a few old ones. Yeah. So, what kind of schedule do you have right now? Do you have a definite tour thing you want to set up soon? No, we're kind of off. Uh, Playing uh, concerts somehow uh, no one enjoys the big places anymore, mm -hmm. and uh, to go into clubs for more than just a night every now and then just to have fun is kind of meaningless, really. Yeah. So I think I think we'll do uh, do a couple more albums, and then everyone will probably. Uh, for a while, get into their own things. I think uh, each guy in the band has certain projects that they want to do yeah. more independently. Yeah. I could. Well, I couldn't speak for them, mm -hmm. but I, I think uh, I've heard that Robbie would like to do one of his own, uh, predominantly guitar thing. But of course, this is something I don't know about. It's in his head. Yeah. And John has always been, uh, I think, basically he likes jazz, and I would suspect uh, he might uh, produce and, and play in a jazz album of his own. The two of them, Robbie and John, a couple of years ago, produced an album with some friends of theirs called A Comfortable Chair. I don't know if you ever heard it. Remember that? Yeah, yeah they produced that album. Yeah, so right, they right. they both uh, got an ear for producing. What yourself? Do you have a film project? Uh, I guess that's what I've always really wanted to do, even more than uh, being in a band, was to work in films. Hmm. And uh, I'd like to write and, and uh, direct a film of my own. You haven't written? Well, yeah. it's all in my head. You know? uh -huh. But I, I do, you know, I have a, a, a film that I made, which yeah. hasn't been seen very much. Maybe you ought to see it sometime. Which is this one? It's called Highway, H-W-Y. Uh -huh. You know, I like, heard about it, yeah. That was included in, was it included in, the, in that festival of films of yours up in... Uh, Canada. Right. Uh -huh. How did it go over? It was for a, a now defunct uh, music magazine yeah, called Poppin' in Vancouver. Yeah. 
it was a benefit to try and keep them going. And the reports I got back were, was that Highway was very enthusiastically received. Was that shown at the film festival? Well, I, Feast of Friends was yeah. a year or so ago. Yeah. It met with uh, a lot of booze. <laughs> Do you think that, that was because, was that the same reaction as it had been met by, say, in L.A.? I think they were probably reacting to uh, personalities rather than a film, because uh -huh. it was a film. <coughs> and uh, Highway was entered in uh, the San Francisco Film Festival, but it was rejected for whatever reason. I don't know. They didn't, they didn't show it. Do you think the reaction in San Francisco was, was like uh, sort of a regional chauvinism? or? Uh, I don't know. Do you think that that really exists or not? I've wondered about that. It probably did a year and a half ago. Could sure. Be. You're such a, definitely yeah. a, a Los Angeles uh, person. Citizen of L.A., yeah. Yeah. So that, could, that could be. But it's a 50-minute it's a film. It's uh, a 35 millimeter and some color. Yeah. I think that's. Uh, Is it more of you and the group, or it's no? It's a, it's, a, it's a fiction thing. I I act in it, and I made it with some friends of mine. But uh, I don't think it has much commercial appeal. I would like people to see it, though. It was more of an exercise for me, kind of a warm up for something bigger. Mm -hmm. It's it's more poetic, you know. It's not there's no story or anything yeah. essentially. You were saying uh, that you might not do concerts until after a couple of albums, uh, or may not even do any concerts at all after the albums you were talking about the projects. How how then do you perceive your audience? And how, how do you know that you're making the, the right kind of connections? Or is that important? You know, where in concerts you know the reactions to each song right after you've done it, or any particular step you want to take, like your theatrics when you did that, you tell right away. This was the reaction. Well, it, I guess it depends on what audience you want to play for, because probably since, uh, you know, a few years ago, we were probably right on for the age of people that go to large concerts, whereas yeah. now we might appeal to an, an older audience, maybe that, maybe still the Fillmore crowds, they might still enjoy it. Yeah. But uh, I would say it would be an anachronism for the younger people. You know, I mean, things change so fast, we probably uh, just too uh, old-fashioned for the, the new kids coming along. Do you think you would be counted among those that would signify uh, what some people insist on, on calling the death of rock and roll? I mean, would your trial, that whole thing you went through, uh, your falling star with that count al along with Manson and with uh, the Beatles breakup and with Dylan's uh, New Morning and all the others? Well, I was I was saying rock was dead years ago. Yeah. I think probably it was not see what rock means to me is uh, for example at one period, 20 or 30 years ago, jazz was the kind of music people went to in large crowds to dance to and and uh, move around to. Mm -hmm. And then uh, rock and roll replaced that, and then another generation came along and they called it rock. And then... The, you say jazz, you're talking about the Benny Goodman era, big time or who, bands yeah. and boogie-woogie, right. as opposed to uh, the, the really smaller. Right, and what happens when they fell out of popularity, they became more introverted and started communicating just with the musicians, so they had their own 
standards, which they felt no one was really uh, able to comprehend. Yeah. Well, that's you know what we call rock. The, the new generation of kids will come along in a few years. Uh, will swarm together, and they'll have a new name for it. Yeah, it'll be the same. It'll be just the kind of music that people like to go out and uh, get it on to. Oh no, because well, back in the boogie woogie days, or the 30s, or 40s, or the 50s, the music didn't generate, or wasn't, didn't become a symbol of a whole new culture, or a subculture, or a generation. Whereas now, the audience seems to be much more than an audience. It's a whole real way of life and approach to living. But you know, each generation wants new symbols, new people, and new new names for what they they want to divorce themselves from the preceding generation. So they'll yeah. they'll call, they won't call it rock. They'll call, they'll invent some new name for it. Don't you think? Do you, do you still think that rock is alive and going to? Oh no, not necessarily. Alive? Not not in not in the way that it was when the Doors first came on and were yeah. at their at your zenith. You know, uh, that can't be alive anymore simply because the audience has all everybody's moved on to a whole new thing. Um, not necessarily a whole new thing, which means a whole new show, but a different level. Yeah. You know, generally, I mean, the audience expanded so fast that you couldn't possibly hope to keep that kind of general appeal to everybody. You know, you had to start to select certain segments and hope that uh, you were satisfied yourself. Um, but don't you see a, a, a cyclical thing? Every five or ten years, everyone comes together and swarms and they break apart and they come oh, back. Oh, sure, sure. Just as, uh, even just since the history of rock and roll music, there have been dips, you know, declines, and there's just absolutely nothing happening, you know, total vacuum. Except that I think that in the last uh, four or five years, there's been much more importance uh, ascribed to rock and roll that wasn't there, you know. Like rock and roll just shrugged off by most people. And even the kids didn't, didn't take it very seriously as an art form. It wasn't music to dance to, but it wasn't music to think to, you know, and march to, and uh, to discuss. But still, when you think when you think about rock, it, it's uh, a definite four-four physical body movement trip. It's not uh, it's not uh, mind music. I don't think. I mean, for example, if you if you couldn't understand the words, there'd still be everything there to react to. Mm -hmm. The Grand Funk Railroad. So they, yeah, they have the, uh, yeah. well, I don't, I've never heard them. Yeah. Why, why, why does it say you're reforming? Is there something with the general uh, line of thought there? Are you, are you now uh, I guess that, giving that, up uh, riding airplanes and... Uh, <laughs> I guess that was the, uh, I doubt if the writer thought of that. It was probably the, the headline writer, like in a paper, they have a guy that just writes headlines. Oh. Are you still considering yourself the, the, the lizard king, or...? I guess that... I just, uh... What I was trying to say in that was that was years ago, and it, even then it was kind of ironic. You know, I, I meant it ironically, it wasn't meant... There's a good, a good part in that interview that says that that whole thing was done tongue-in-cheek. What know? whole thing was done? Was it the celebration of the lizard? Mm. That part? Well, half tongue in cheek. Half tongue in cheek, and everybody thought it was like so sweet, you know. It's like. Well, it's an easy thing to pick up on. Was it a reaction to people taking you too, taking you too seriously? <coughs> I ju I just thought everyone knew that it was ironic, but apparently, 
they saw I, I met. Yeah. What what does this kind of reaction get? The booze in San Francisco or the people who sort of shrug off your poetry? Does that make you uh, just want to do even more? Do you have the book of poems yet? I should have brought one down. Pamela mentioned that to me the first time I met her. Okay. Yeah. And American Prayer, too. Are you sure? See, you should read that because the guy states in the beginning that he expected to see yeah. a. Uh, well, he expected to see me three years ago. What? Uh, how about Miami? Is that. Uh, do you think that's going to be uh, a that, That's all explained in there perfectly. Yeah. Will, will it, I'm asking uh, beyond Miami, will that play a, a major part in whether you go back to concerts and how soon you do? No, that really didn't affect it. I think that was... Uh, that was, uh, in a way, that was the culmination of our performing, mass performing career. Mm -hmm. I think uh, subconsciously I was trying to get across in that concert that uh, I was trying to reduce it to absurdity. Yeah. Well, well, and it, it worked too well. Yeah. Hadn't you also tried that uh, in your films? Uh, no, the films... The that film, was more of a documentary. Yeah, the film Feast of Friends was a poetic documentary. of All that was was a crew, a small crew, following us around for about a year, and then we, we cut a film out of it. So that was a true poetic documentary of where it was at at that time. We weren't. So you were really enjoying that kind of right. thing at that time. It was still fun at that time. Mm -hmm. When did it stop getting to be fun? Were you just bored with it, or uh, did you sense something in the audience that you didn't want to communicate? You know, that they were I think, receiving you wrong. I think you. Uh, there's a certain moment when you when you're right. You're right in time with your audience, and then you. You both grow out of it, and it, you just have to realize it, that it's not that you've outgrown the audience, it's just that the audience and you both are too old for that. Yeah. You know, it has to go on to something else and let, let the younger people do, you see, do that. Do you see doing blues uh, music as uh, anything, either uh, an advance or, or just stepping back to look at things in more perspective, or what? Does, does that fit in at all with uh, outgrowing an audience? No, well, that's just, I think, getting back to uh, doing more what we enjoy, what we actually personally enjoy. Not that we've ever not played music that we didn't like. But you see, when you have a, you have a record contract, and unfortunately, you, uh, when you're first starting out, you, you can't just sign up for a couple of records. You have to... Uh, Usually contracts are like five or six records. Yeah, right. So or five or six for ten years. Right. Yeah. Fortunately, we didn't have that. But we had we had six records, and so there's a uh, pressure on you to keep putting them out mm -hmm. because uh, you have to fulfill this obligation. Yeah. I mean, there are ways to get out of it, but that means the death of the group. Yeah. You have to reform and go somewhere else under a new name or something. How much longer do you have with Electric? Well, we're uh, at work on our last album. For them. Mm -hmm. Do you see far beyond that? I can't see too much beyond that. Uh, you know, it's a day-to-day -day thing. I think we're at, at this album, we're at kind of a crossroads in our career. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we'll know within the next five or six months what the future will be. Mm -hmm. What, Robbie and John, would they want to stay with later? 
It's really no beef with the label at all. Because yeah. I'm, I'm sure as uh, record companies go, I've never been on another one, but I'm sure they're just as good as any other one. It's oh, not, sure. you know, it's not a quarrel with them. Right, no, it's just more like yourselves, where you stand. So what this album will be is kind of, uh, it's not a return to anything or a falling back into some older kind of music. It's, it's mainly thinking about what we enjoy and not worrying about the result of it so much. Was there anybody uh, who influenced you in making that decision, physically? Not really. It just, uh, I guess when, when the audience be became uh, something amorphous and, uh, you know, a couple years ago we had a close contact with an audience because we play, you know, 200 days out of the year, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And now that we don't, the audience is something, uh, uh, it's an unknown quantity. Yeah. We have no contact with it. So we have to fall back on ourselves. Mm. Are you, when we talk about films, are you saying strictly films as uh, relating to cinema houses, or are you thinking about video cassettes and that sort of thing too? Which would then be a visual record in a way, you know, years from now. No, I, if I made a film, I would be making it for a movie house because, you know, I'm sure cassettes will, uh, uh, I'm sure, you know, when you think about it, they've probably already replaced television even though they haven't been marketed yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, once the idea is there, it's already happened, you know. But uh, I think people will always have uh, a desire to huddle together in a dark theater and be an audience and react to something as an audience, which you can't do. Because a cassette will be more like watching TV or listening to an album or reading a book. Mm -hmm. But I would I would be making a film for uh, movie audience uh, movie houses as we know them, which would then be used for cassettes anyway. Sure, but I think uh, you know although movie houses are probably already an anachronism, mm -hmm. uh, I can't think of anything else because I've never seen a cassette. I like the idea of it, but yeah. Well, of course, the limitations are the size and the cost uh, and the fact that. Uh, there aren't probably that many films that you would play as in the main times of the record, you know. But economically, to make a film for a movie house would be, now, with the advent of uh, cheaper production methods, 16mm and all that, yeah. it would be, this. you'd probably make a film now for a movie house the same as you would if you were making it directly for a video cassette. Mm. I don't think... Uh, the economic factor would be that much different, mm -hmm. or the production methods. Yeah. It would probably be a low-budget 16-millimeter film. How important is poetry to you now? Are you still working on, on pieces? Yeah, actually, uh, this book is, is more of a collection of aphorisms and, and notes. Mm -hmm. There are only five or six really solid traditional poems in it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I don't consider that my career as a poet has really even begun yet. Mm -hmm. Are these just thoughts you drop down on paper bags? And... Yeah, keeping notebooks and then yeah. uh, at the end of a few years you sit down and 
got to pick the good ones out. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting thing because this part of the book was written before Jim did anything in um, Rock and Roll Nut. This whole thing about shade and everything really But he really didn't do wine or anything. Mm -hmm. Beer? Yeah, what was this written? Nothing this was written before he did anything in rock, like, like right sure, after college. Sure, why not? And like, there's already that perception of audiences. And, mm -hmm. and it's amazing because he never, you know, he didn't even sing or do anything or write songs and that was done. Do they take Yeah, they take credit for it, sure. You know where Barney's is? Yeah. Oh, right there. Oh, great. There's another part about the Lords, which is interesting, which tells about not when they visit what they do, how they affect art and they change it. I think it's through. The second book was written like early, really, really early. Early in the rock thing. That's kind of second book. Actually, all those notes stretch over, you know, from the time I was in college till uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we'd like to yes, make an order, please. Morrison. What's the address here? Um, 8216. 8216. Norton Avenue. Norton Avenue. Yeah, it's right near you. He landed with that they were constructions. Uh, it's, it's, uh, what's the apartment number? It's, <laughs> it's on the really ground floor. It's like, really uh, very hard, like, right in, right in the driveway. Just pull in the driveway. It's a literary magazine in New York. Yeah, is there a letter or a number for this apartment? Yeah, just tell me the one right it's, here. It's we'll a, see him. Forever, you know, a little skinny and little uh -huh. like that. You get to be like a tiny standard. Right, and a half a pint. When you get towards there, you're bound to fill uh, out. Mostly in do fill out. Will you? A little bit, sure. Mm. If you keep dancing, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Keep exercising. And do you want some yeah. potato chips? Yeah, a bag of potato chips. There's not a lot of Thank places you. to get exercise around here. A large one. Ride a bicycle, walk your eyes in your car. Sure. Yeah. Let's do. Why have, you, why have you gotten fat, Jim? That's the question we're discussing. Why have I gotten fat? How have you managed to get so uh, hefty? He says he's fat. Uh, yeah, you, 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 you like filled out it. a little bit. Yeah, oh, sure, yeah, I'm not complaining. Yeah. Is there some poetic reason for that? Just, no, what are Well, uh, let's see. I guess it's just a natural aging process. Ah, that's what you say. Well, well some people are, uh, get either real sluggish because of aging, you know. Yeah static or they keep it they keep running around a lot and stay busy and maybe stay it's busy. not being as physically active but i think it's mainly just uh i think just filling out you know yeah. some people have that kind of build you know? yeah does touring and running around doing that kind of thing does that make you lose a lot of weight yeah i would say if you if you performed a lot and sweated a lot and moved around you'd probably keep it's really now. Mm. i drink a lot of beer when you still do. Yeah, when I'm, you are. Well, when I'm recording, especially, because uh, if, if you if you drink hard liquor when you're recording, pretty soon you're so out of it, you you can't do anything anymore. But beer, it just it gives you a little energy, and you can keep going all night. You know, mm. and beer is really puts on the on the pounds. Are you, are you are you uh, 
how's the recording coming along? Are you pushing for a particular date to finish it up, or is it very slow? And no, actually, this is probably, since the first album, this is probably the fastest one we've ever done. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hope it works out. <laughs> oh, it sounds great. I heard some of the stuff today and it sounds great. Mm -hmm. We're not, I think, probably finish it up by the end of the month. Stay. Oh, hey. Hi. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, staying fine. <laughs> Notice his breath gets real fast. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but you look familiar. John, this is Jim, Pam, Ben, and Susie. John, how are you? Hi, it's me. How are you? Hello. Hello. Insane. Hello. Hello. I always look like someone. No, no, I have seen you sometimes. Could be anything. Well, I can't tell if I've seen you before with your laying down. Well, I'll stand up yeah. in a couple minutes and then you can. No, it's, a, it's not a nice thing to say to a girl. Uh, do you live in what? San Francisco? Yeah, yeah, I stay there. Uh, what, what did you do in Miami uh, during the, the uh, spare time? Spare hours? I mean, like you're, weren't you sort of like cap captive in, uh, in the city? Yeah. And dragged out and stuff? Yeah, and sometimes it'd be two days, sometimes three days a week. Yeah. So I had a chance to do uh, a little water skiing. I learned how to scuba dive when I was down there, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Not going you know, in even went down to Nassau for a weekend. And they have uh, beautiful underwater natural uh, parks kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So you actually could relax and forget things uh, after the court hours and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you ever scuba dived? It's a beautiful trip. Mm -hmm. I learned to do scuba dive for a whole month. Just every day I go out and scuba dive. Try it first, you might not like it. But uh, I hope so. It's fair, you, you're just floating. It's uh, an intrauterine experience. Well, what was your main interest in the, in the case, uh, aside from simply you know, your, your own personal uh, 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 risk? I mean, like, were you interested in it legally, or was it, like, very uninteresting, other than the fact that you might be hung for a... You know, I was hoping... <coughs> I'm not sure uh, I was hoping, but I thought there might be a possibility it would become a, uh, a major case, some kind of uh, groundbreaking case. It, but it didn't turn out that way. And I think it was... Uh, I think that might might have been one of the reasons they dragged it out so long. Mm -hmm. In order not to let enough uh, m momentum and yeah. sentiment build up in a short time, uh -huh. that, that a lot of attention would be focused on it. So it it actually uh, uh, received very little uh, national attention. There was always coverage down there. Mm -hmm. But in a way, I was kind of relieved because, uh, as the case wore on, it, there there were any, there were no great uh, uh, ideals at stake. And what grounds were you talking about the, the possibility of that case breaking? I thought I thought it might be become just like a basic American issue of uh, freedom of speech and the right of. Uh, the right of anyone with a, with a personal viewpoint to uh, state their uh, ideas in public and receive 
receive a hearing without uh, uh, legal pressure being put on him, but it turned out that... Uh, and you're talking about free speech in the domain of the artist's expression? Yeah. As opposed to, uh, say, uh, what the Chicago aid... Yeah, right. This, mm -hmm. In fact, my lawyer made a, a brilliant speech uh, partway through the trial in which he uh, traced the origin of uh, freedom of speech and uh, which goes side by side with uh, the the origin of drama, actually. Mm -hmm. the, the right of a dramatist to, uh, or an artist to uh, state his views without coming under legal pressure. And it was, it was a brilliant uh, uh, summary of that historical process, but I, it didn't have any effect mm -hmm. on the outcome at all. Um, mm -hmm. He stated uh, cases rec just recently in Texas where some people put on uh, even a street theater, five or six people in a public uh, thoroughfare, I mean not in the middle of the street, on a sidewalk or somewhere, they put on a, a show, uh, an anti-war thing or something, and they were arrested, but it, uh, they, were, they, they got off on the, on the grounds that it was... What were you talking about? Oh, oh, the uh, the idea that oh, about free speech. Yeah. Anyway, the First Amendment uh, provides supposedly for freedom of expression, and there's a clause of it which which states that uh, any dramatic or public artistic performance comes under this uh, mm -hmm. this amendment which guarantees the right to say anything you want to without fear of being prosecuted. Right. Now, there are many test cases in which that tenet can be proven quite easily. Did the prosecution use a lot of test cases to prove the opposite, the effect well, of uh, obscenity and that sort of thing? Basically, what, uh, they, they refused to listen to any testimony uh, which would... Um, come under that clause, they were prosecuting uh, wholly on a criminal case. One of the many Bruce was prosecuted on a criminal case. And what's the difference? Probably no difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Bruce was the first that involved uh, a, a rock and roll uh, festival, the youth audience as opposed, whereas the others were nightclubs or theaters or books. Yeah. My defense uh, counselors were prepared to uh, plead a whole case on uh, the fact that even if this uh, alleged event did occur, that it did not violate contemporary community standards. Mm -hmm. And they were going to take the jury to see Woodstock, Woodstock a lot of other films. You know, yeah. That was just one because it was a, a youth audience. Mm -hmm. And during the trial, uh, the production company of Hair opened up in Miami, and they had uh, profanity and full nudity mm -hmm. on stage, and there was no restriction as to the age of the audience. Mm -hmm. They let anybody in. Right. But uh, <coughs> the judge uh, anticipated that, and throughout the proceedings, he refused to allow any testimony uh, regarding 
uh, community standards. Now, is that really though a, a relevant, relevant parallel though? Because in here and in, well, perhaps not so much in Woodstock, but say in here, uh, that profanity and that uh, alleged obscenity, you know, frontal nudity or whatever, is planned as part of the act. Would you then have to testify that uh, your whatever actions you took were part of your act, and you therefore stood by your rights to do that? And yours is spontaneous. Uh, well, but but it is a uh, it is a theatrical performance, yeah. nonetheless. Right. It's not a political rally. Mm -hmm. You know, we uh, uh, we go on and do a, a series of songs that everyone's familiar with, mm -hmm. and uh, the people. I could think. Imagine planning an act like that in a yeah. Oh, oh, I know. The people. Well, the people. Hey, hold it. The people that come to the uh, that come to the show have the albums, and they I think they know basically what they what they're coming to see. So you're asking like if it was well, they wouldn't be a surprise. If it, that's the factor I think I'm thinking about. Oh, I see. But does Mayor advertise that they do they advertise what they're going to do? Uh, no, but it's very well known in the publicity and in, in the critics uh, in reviewing an act of yours, uh, especially in the first two or three years, probably didn't point out that you know you were an angry man who blah 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 and pulled your zipper down and shit like that uh, and caused riots. Although there was like a Life magazine article in, uh, about a bust in New Haven, and so they they right they they should have been prepared that it wasn't uh, it wasn't asked uh, for bottles; it was asked for uh, fifteen ounce cans. Well, that's cool. We'll just have to live with it. I thought I asked for bottles, and he said he didn't have them. No, we don't. We don't have bottles or twelve ounce cans. Okay. Well, that's interesting. It's not as good. I suppose they, they could have had a point there, but they never even got into that. You know, they refused to. Uh, they were they were trying me purely on criminal offense. Hmm. Did the jury go along with you? Could could you detect what the jury thought? There's no way to do that during a trial. It's illegal to do that. There's no. That the decision they came to, to sure, oh, sure sound like compromise, absolutely. You know, if they, if they felt you were innocent and wanted to not let you go totally, you know, and had to... I have, I have some, uh, some court rumor that came to me after the decision, but it wouldn't be right to uh, right. talk about it this time, you know. But, uh, I didn't sign it. Oh, that's all right, because this is my receipt. All I can do is sign it. Right. I don't do this that often. So this is my life. But uh, I'll, I'll save that for an article, an essay I hope to write on the on the trial someday. Because I kept notes during the whole thing, and so I have a kind of an inside reaction. Thank you very much. So what, now what exactly did they, did they find you? See you later. Have a good night.
What did they find you guilty of? Was that the, the obscenity, right? Well, let's see, there were four charges. One yeah. was a felony, which right. carried a three-year rap. That was on uh, lascivious behavior, including exposure. Uh-huh. And uh, one, uh, the three misdemeanors, one was on profanity, one was on, uh, let's see, uh, well, if you think about the thing, you see profanity, dr uh, public drunkenness, mm -hmm. and the other misdemeanor was one that included the uh, exposure charge. Mm -hmm. It was a separate mm -hmm. one. And so, constitutionally, right there, they were wrong because you're not supposed to be able to try a person on the same count twice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even though they're in separate categories. Right. But, but one count, the, the felony included one of the other uh -huh. counts, and so that was, uh, that's illegal right there. Mm -hmm. Well, you could, you could argue that anyway. That's probably one of the, uh, the motions that we'll put in the appeal. Mm -hmm. Right. So, well, why wasn't that argued? Uh, in the process of the trial, I mean, from the very beginning, couldn't you have called for a dismissal because of that? Yeah, well, we called for dismissals a score of times, but mm -hmm. they were all denied. Mm -hmm. uh, you see that another interesting thing: the judge who tried the case happened to be up for re-election during the trial. As a matter of fact, he was re-elected toward the end of the trial. That's and happened a lot of times too. Has like dope busts, where uh, the, the judges just tend to be lenient, you know. He, he may have been bribed or something, and yet, uh, because this group is only in town for a few days, and he could let him go for a thousand bucks, sure, but then he's up for a trial in a local community in Stanford, so he has to do, give him some kind of a, a harsh <laughs> fine or a barely suspended sentence or something. <coughs> well. Shall we stop for a minute to have some uh, refreshment? Mm -hmm. That's probably the kind of uh, injustice that uh, Sidney was talking about. But I don't think it's, uh, I think he was wrong in saying a typical case of Southern injustice. I don't think it has anything to do with the region mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And besides, Miami is, it's not the Deep South, actually. It, it may have a lot of characteristics of it. But, uh, you said um, it was a typical case of Southern justice. Bill. But, uh, but who knows, because uh, I've never been on a, a big trial, like, for example, in L.A., and who knows, it might, uh, well, there's a chance that th this whole case would have been thrown out the first day in some other city. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, that was another uh, cause for argument, was that there was no possible way I could have received a fair trial because of the climate of public <coughs> opinion, which had been stirred up for over a year and a half with mm -hmm. probably a newspaper, radio, or TV article every day for a year and a half. In Miami. Yeah. I mean, we have a... Well, of course, we all those decency rallies. Right. Yeah. We have a sheaf of uh, uh, clippings mm -hmm. that takes up two files from all over the country. <coughs> Just in Miami alone, there is... Uh, we had a very good case of pre-trial publicity. But you know, it was uh, one thing I, w I was interested to observe. We would rush home uh, each day from the trial to watch ourselves on TV. They'd, they couldn't film in the courtroom, but showing up and leaving, they'd film it. Mm. And uh, 
hear the reporter's view of, of what had happened that day. Mm -hmm. And the first few days, it was kind of the old line policy of kind of what people had been thinking uh, for a year and a half. But as the trial wore on, the reporters themselves, and I guess just talking to me and people involved with the case, uh, the tone of the news articles, not so much, well, even the papers, uh, began to be a little more objective as each day went on. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the time the issue of the, uh, when I uh, was sentenced and the judge, uh, was, this was on a Sunday morning, the jury came in with their decision and found me guilty of two misdemeanors, the profanity and the uh, exposure. Mm. Not the public drunkenness mm -hmm. or the, the, uh, the felony. And uh, he wanted $50,000 in cash that morning. Otherwise, I would have had to go to jail right then. Who? The, the judge. For what? A bond? Yeah, well, no, uh, for bail. He wouldn't take a bond because he thought, uh, he claimed that, that uh, I wouldn't come back, you know. But uh, the lawyers pointed out that uh, I'd been back, uh, I'd made about six round trip, plane trips. Uh, and uh, I'd been down there for for uh, over six weeks, and you know, wh wh why was he to think that I wouldn't? And what did he say then? Well, finally, when the sentencing, well, when the sentencing came, he uh, gave a little speech to kind of explain why he'd done that because he came under a lot of uh, criticism from the local mm -hmm. attorneys in town. He was it was kind of a, a laughing matter because there never. I mean, that probably sets a record in the United States for a bail for a misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. You know, misdemeanors carrying six months in jail at the most, right. and he wanted $50,000. We finally got up the bond. We talked him into taking a bond. You know. mm -hmm. Imagine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right in the, uh, the first storm of publicity about that, did you want to go back and attend the decency rallies and that sort of thing? Go in disguise. I read about it. I was in uh, Palm Springs with some friends making this film, Highway, mm -hmm. and I read about it in the morning paper. I was really uh, amazed. Mm -hmm. Seemed like a pretty good phony prop up all the way, though. You know, they managed to get a few thousand kids in there, but still. I think it was more like 30,000 people. They broke up in riots and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, let's say they have a, they have a a fairly well-to-do community down there that's uh, kind of removed from the rest of the world in a way. And uh, all of a sudden in their midst is springing up this new lifestyle, people with long hair and smoking dope and uh, talking about love and peace and anti-war sentiments and all. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, right in their own town. And they were probably, uh, I think this is probably a a reaction stemming out of that, you know, fear of something unknown that was happening right in their own city. Right. And yet within about uh, six months after your incident, uh, they were allowing concerts by Janis Joplin. They were allowing, or they <coughs> allowed a festival, a couple of pop festivals. Although they did cancel a number of concerts right afterward, you know, the Hallandale Festival. Well, you know, concerts uh, are also revenue for the city, of course. Mm -hmm. It's not insignificant either. Oh, sure, but then considering the public relations of the storm that they had created you know, right after your your case, it seemed like it was weird because 
there was also, of course, a repression between the government front with uh, the various speeches and pressures by the FCC and Nixon and Agnew. But you know, there are a lot of kids down there that love music, and uh, you know they can't stop concerts. You know, there, there would have been riots then. You know, if there had been a blackout on music. Yeah. I'm sure there would have been. There, are, I mean, they uh, have a lot of music down there. When I was down there, they had uh, two or three big concerts a week, and a lot of clubs around town. And were there any <coughs> clubs there than there actually are in LA? Well, yeah, in a way, the kind of, but I mean, it, like L.A. used to be three or four years ago when, when uh, there was Beto Litos and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, small clubs like that that catered to a real young audience. Cyril mm. still wasn't, it was yes. a rock club, club right. around the trip. Mm. Was it Pan, uh, Pandora's, Pandora's Box? Pandora's Box, that's where they had the, the trip. Yeah. Kids really tried hard to save Pandora's box. Mm. Have you gone to ballrooms and stuff recently? Seen concerts? See how the kids have changed? In San Francisco, for example, um, now there's just no more dancing. And that's sort of sad for me. I mean, it hasn't been for a couple of years now, but it's all just totally everybody's wiped out, laid out, sitting scrunched up. It's just, I think it's just cycles of energy. Mm. I think that a lot of kids bought a great uh, dream in the beginning of the whole trip. And now the dream didn't turn out like everybody foresaw it. And so a lot of kids are just really laid back behind uh, downers and stuff like Literally that. Literally laid know? back. Completely. You might be just, like I said before, the expanding just the quantity of the audience. So now it just happens to be a segment of the audience that cares to go out and do see live music, it tends to be that segment that also goes. In get stoned on reds or something. Well, at one time, everyone, the whole community, was going out to dance, you know, mm -hmm. and listen to music, and now it's not that way. I can't imagine what the film would be like. Is that place mm. still open now? Oh, yeah. Well, it's part of the whole business of rock and roll, too, the pricing structure, you know, what is costing that for acts, and therefore promoters tend to book different kinds of acts. Do very many people go there? I mean, like, is yeah, it the same crowd, incredible. is it a different yeah. type of crowd? Well, Bill Graham's been, over the last couple of months, going through a rather dry spell in terms of getting good big names in his ballroom. So, like, last one weekend he had, uh, just last weekend he had Free and Blood Rock and some other minor group. Week before he had Spirit as a headliner, and they drew a packed house. Incredible. And Spirit has not sold records in many years. Oh, and they're Los Angeles when they did sell records. So I understand there are still people, a good segment of the community that goes out and, you know, pays Probably their dollars every weekend school, anyway. Probably uh, college kids and stuff. <coughs> mm -hmm. So there's an audience. You know, they appreciate music that much, but they go out and get stoned and uh, pay three and a half dollars. Well, I suppose it's more exciting than going to a movie like people used to do. Yeah, I get <coughs> I'd rather go to a movie now. Mm -hmm. Of course, I never really That's just it. And there are those who, yet, who have not yet discovered films and... Uh, Inner stimulation of students. I, I take it you like films. I guess everybody does, but I mean, are you a real aficionado, or I mean, you go more than once a week? Oh no, not really. No, no. I haven't. <laughs> You're not a three movie well, a I day man. I've studied porn films and things like that. No, I'm just in interested in the visual medium. That's all. I like, it's nice to have a club to go to. I sometimes still like to, you know, sometimes you want to go out to a club where there's people and there's mm -hmm. music and stand there and 
and feel that. But there is actually, there are no clubs in Los Angeles to go to except for Whiskey or Gogo or the Troubadour. And those, yeah. those aren't really clubs. And you don't get that clubs. kind of feeling in there. They're, no, they they're all have, those people, most of them, I think, have such such preconceived attitudes. Even the people that run the club about what they'll allow and what they won't and what's mm -hmm. hip and what isn't hip. And, you know, and it's just... It really uh, takes well, you away see the, a lot of the spontaneity <clears throat> or the excitement of it. The, the Fillmore's were interesting because they were created by the audience, whereas the whiskey was the whiskey before there was an audience. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and now the now the Fillmore is uh, it's the creation of an audience t three or four years ago. It's no longer right. The whiskey was always the standard entertainment format. Mm -hmm. The they change with this, the, the trend. It was created by the people who made it, you know, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. built it. And I don't sure. know. I, I can't get behind the troubadour at all. Mm -hmm. Diane had some guest uh, passes or something. We went down there. Some girl at the thing said, I won't honor those because you're not Diane Gardner and I know her. Just, you know, and mm -hmm. so Doug Weston kind of intervened a little bit. But, you know, always there's some hassle there, you know, or something. Oh, it's part of worship program <laughs> space. You know, that's a ballroom. It depends on the person. Yeah. Do, does your magazine get a lot of passes to events to cover the event and all that? Mm, Are they pretty don't generous with that? We generally don't uh, want them. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's it's rather it's much better than that vague. It's like uh, I'm going to be going off on tour with uh, the Jackson Five. Oh wow! Do oh, a big yeah. story on them, you know. Beautiful. And the guy at Motown asked me, "Is like, uh, well, gee, we can't take care of your airplane tickets or something?" And I just told him, "Well, we didn't assume you, you, know, you would." You know, please don't. Mm -hmm. It's just much better to not oh, have a kind of tie-in because, well, you know all about promotion and stuff. You know? That's great. Yeah. They're one of the they're one of the people they're really interested in because they're really, really, you know, kind of young. Yeah, and that's what's needed, I think, is that kind of youth and freshness. And, yeah. I mean, they're, they're really they're not original. You know, it's just that they're a bit different and they're enthusiastic, and that's all that really matters right now to me. Have you seen them yet? Jackson in person? Probably I bet their audiences are real young. Mm -hmm. uh, I bet you they draw a lot of old girl people too because they do love village people. Mo Motown, yeah, everybody gets out usually behind a, a good Motown act. Oh, sure. It's never like uh, Rita Franklin didn't, you know, I think all, always. It might be part of the nature of uh, the black audience. Uh, yeah. A lot of the, the most. Uh, Devoted fans are in the age range where they're naturally taken by parents to the concerts. Uh -huh. And I the parents dig it too because the music is like in the house all the time. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, saw yeah. I saw them at the forum. It was like evenly divided between like mothers, not too many yeah. fathers, but yeah. mothers and kids between about nine and, and uh, even 18 and 19. Yeah. Sure. yeah. I and saw Smokey Robinson and uh, Stevie Wonder at the Greek Theater, and it was that kind of crowd, a very family crowd. But, you know, the, the kids just unleashed themselves. They went crazy, rushed the stage, and they screamed, those Beatles, right. and, you know, it's yeah. the same trip. Yeah. They, that's, I think they need more more band, more rock and roll acts, and more bands that'll come along that'll be new. But the audience of, like, isn't predominantly black. Uh, oh. How is mm -hmm. it hard? They kind of fashion themselves on the old bands like the Stones, that Beatles, yeah. that Well, what the, what the people want yeah. is uh, <coughs> they want an artist or a band to come along that's just totally um, casting aside all the, uh, the past and all the 
the business associations. They have to give the impression we're doing this for a reason. It's not because we're out here to make a lot of bread off you people, you know. Mm. Well, that's don't you think? No, I don't know because they want to see they want to see them drive big cars or something and yeah. you know, live well. Yeah. But they, I think they they want to feel that the group is a part of their community mm -hmm. rather than something that's being laid on from somewhere else on top of it. Most you of know. the big groups have gone so far that it's always that. Like the Stones when they were here, this huge yeah, um, red through the tickets sure. and everything. I don't know. It, it, again, it comes down to me anyway to the fragmentation of the audience. I mean, there are, there are those who will accept Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young as members of the community because they're right on on stage and they, they have the kind of glowing family approach to it. And it's me singing the song for you. Or to you know, the 20,000 of you, but still we're singing for you. We're all mm -hmm. friends, and the, but st there will still be four or five or ten percent of the audience that will think only in terms of man. Sixty percent of the gross and against twenty-five thousand, you know, rip off man. Seven fifty ceiling. You know, there will be those who will think along those yeah. lines, no matter what. I mean, they'll dig the music and buy the albums. Yeah. You know, then they're so they're part of the, the fans, but they'll still think along those lines. So it's hard to say that like the Stones are accepted as. You know, at one point, the vanguard of the revolution because of one song they sang, and yet people don't forget that they make. They, they swept through the states and you know wiped everybody out financially. Was do you think that the Rolling Stone magazine will evolve <coughs> into a different type of journalism? I notice you know you do cover political events and, and co other cultural events, but do you, do you think that the policy will be to make it basically a music magazine? As long as we believe music is a good basis and, and uh, a strong force in, in, in communication. Yeah, well, we do. If you look, you There's know, there's got to be some changes. It's, it's funny. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> it, it's like uh, it's, it's funny when the other magazines who are trying to catch up with Rolling Stone will say so something like out of their beer. Rolling Stone has become a trade magazine for the music press, you know, or yeah. something. And when you look at the last issue, and John Lennon is not exactly Billboard, you know. Mm -mm. Uh, we're running fiction pieces now. We're running fiction pieces. We're yeah. trying to run more poetry. Uh, what, what I think is happening, like even in movies, I was telling Jim, like even before this rush, there's largely some movies, some like uh, things about girls again and romance in films mm -hmm. and, and things like that. And right so, after that, there was a thing on Time Newsweek about this mm -hmm. new return. Age of romance, yeah. Because I think people need that. Everybody's been so heavy for so long. Everybody's been like super heavy, super. <coughs> well, that's happened in music. You know, happened in music a year or two ago, and with the people like uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and mm -hmm. Jamie Taylor, and Johnny Mitchell, and mm -hmm. uh, Judy Collins, and on and on, uh, the, the move to acoustic music and more lyrical poetry. But that's some, happened. somehow they didn't. They never quite came off in, in the same way. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Do you see what I mean? Like somehow or other, they never quite uh, did it. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. yeah, but I... <coughs> There's no humor. They weren't funny. Yeah. Well, I think Rolling Stone is adaptable. I think that, sh sure, Jan Winner's own personality is so strong that he was indeed a fan, you know, in the strictest sense of the word, of the Stones, the Beatles, and Bob Dylan. That overshadowed a lot of... I mean, like, it was just so disproportionate. Whenever Dylan moved his finger, we reported on it for the Stones, you know, we covered it, sent 14 reporters to Altamont, you know. Mm -hmm. And the Beatles, when the book came out, we didn't give a, a little half column. We gave it, you know, the whole issue. You know, we gave a four-page spread, just new photos and, and everything else. Editorial was a special issue, an insert, you know, whatever. So I think that with the passing of time, Jan has come to 
to realize that that cannot those are no longer the centers. They were the He's basis. a young guy, and he's yeah. like twenty six or five. Twenty four. Twenty four. Just turned twenty five. Is that amazing? Humor comes into some more humor. I mean, mm -hmm. I've, I've learned, I've watched lately, and I think it requires a lot of intelligence to be funny and witty. Yeah, I know. I you know, know maybe even more so than to be super analytical. I know. It's just that journalism, uh, it, that profession, requires a certain amount of cynicism. Yeah. And cynicism always turns into sour humor. And yeah. sour humor makes you uh, a target for hate. And therefore, especially with the sensitivities of those artists who are written about, they can't really see the humor as much as the poke, you know. They, they, they don't see the little jab as much as the sting. Yeah. You know? We were talking about the, uh, like the heroes in the 20s were the uh, movie stars, and then in the 30s, sports Zelda figures. were great at heroes during that period. Yeah, but not, I mean, I mean, real mass heroes. And then, uh, you know, uh, the musicians were heroes. And I thought it could be, you know, like maybe political activists could sure. be the new heroes. But you know what could be the new hero? I just got a flash. It could be a journalist. I'm not a journalist, but an editor, a crusading young hip editor of a, of a magazine. That was right on about everything that was, yeah. But I mean, was way ahead, you know. Yeah, he'd have to be. He'd have to be as far out as any hero. And it's well, like a like to create a magazine or a newspaper, a new one that was so successful yeah. that, it, that it could influence the whole world. You know, that could be There's fascinating. There's no reason it couldn't be done. I don't see it as much different from an artist with a particular vision that is uh, prophetic, or a poet, or uh, a novelist, or a politician. I mean, generally you're still going to have those who will follow you, but you'll still always have those who will disappoint yeah, but you and shrug you off. <clears throat> poets usually become heroes after they're long gone. It's amazing to think about what Morrison would have come up with in the next chapter of his life, but we unfortunately will never know. That's going to wrap up this B-side of text, prose, and rock and roll. I'd like to thank Suzanne Jo Kai for her very thoughtful documentary, Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres, and also the man, the myth, the legend himself, Ben Fong Torres, for taking some time with us. Thank you also to Ben for allowing us to play that uncut version of his amazing interview. You could think of it as a masterclass in interviewing. Please continue to get the word out about our show. You'll find us on Instagram at textprosrockandroll or online at www.textprosrockandroll.com. And please do subscribe to the show and share with all your friends. We do appreciate it. On behalf of Goto Productions, I'm Chris Kosach. Thanks for listening. Rock on. <laughs>